0: Hi, hello, bonjour, and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Muletala. My guest today is Wesley Faulkner. Wesley, as he will explain to you, is a first-generation American who is currently head of community at Single Store. Wesley is also a polymath, and we'll dig into that. He has a very interesting and wide-ranging experience that spans from hardware to software and crosses over from community management, social media, and now developer relations. He's also neurodiverse, which he will explain in some more details, and has become an advocate for racial justice, workplace equity, and neurodiversity. I was also excited to discover that Wesley serves on the board of South by Southwest, which I've always wanted to attend, and he tells me all about how he became involved. So I'm excited about sharing this conversation with you, discussing Wesley's keynote and how community shapes us. We also talk about rules and integrity, as well as his personal journey to self-acceptance. I'm so happy to have had the privilege to get to know Wesley and indulge in asking him so many questions. This makes it quite a long interview, but I hope that you will enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you so much and happy listening. Welcome, Wesley. So
1: nice to meet you. I have to say that I'm extremely honored to be on your podcast today.
0: Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to to have you in front of me even though it's virtual. I would love to get started by telling our listeners that we are meeting today rather serendipitously because I joined recently a new professional network called Polywork. And there you were literally in the middle of my screen. And I thought, huh, he looks interesting. And there I found out about all of the wonderfully interesting things that you do. And here we are. So the magic of Polywork is underway. Now, having that said, I'd love for you to talk to our listeners about your journey and maybe just get us started by telling us where we are finding you today, who you are and and what it is that you do.
1: I currently live in the States and the current city is Eau Claire in Wisconsin. It's uh, a little small, small, small town. Uh, We Just my family and I relocated here April of last year in 2021 from Austin, Texas. My wife and her family are from this area. And so we relocated because in the age of remote work, it made it flexible for us to be able to pick up and move. And her parents are getting up in age and have some medical concerns. And so it made it easier to be here to help take care of them. And a lot of things in terms of Austin is kind of like a the forge in which I was formed. It's where I went to school. It's where I got my, my first big boy job. It's where I, I, I I bought my first house. I grew up in Houston, Texas, which is not terribly too far from Austin, Texas. And my best friend that I went to high school with got accepted into University of Texas. And so I decided to go there as well. And we were roommates and I majored in electrical computer engineering. So my love of technology and computers really put me on a track going there. I grew up fairly poor, didn't have access to a computer at all. And so I majored in electrical and computer engineering. Mm -hmm basically not using a computer. (laughs) And so I got into technology, spent a lot of time in the computer lab, used my roommate's computer, which is my best friend, Chris. Thank you, Chris. And took it apart, broke it multiple times and then fixed it. And basically I learned by doing, unfortunately, I did it on my roommate's computer. And that led me to one of my first jobs outside of school, which was working as a computer nerd, which is the name of the company, where they Fix and repaired computers. Mm-hmm. And from there I worked for Dell. From Dell, I did phone support and then graduated into working on servers and high-end storage devices. And while I was at Dell, the one of my last jobs there was to be a regional support person. So it moved to Cincinnati for a year, a year and a half, and I was on a plane. Once or twice a week because I was doing emergency break fix. So if NASDAQ went down or Honeywell went down or something like that, Yay. I would just hop on a plane and just fly to the location and fix their systems. When I say NASDAQ goes down, I mean that literally. Um, NASDAQ went down once on a Friday night and I oh, flew man. out there to be out there Saturday morning. And they said, hey, if you don't get this fixed by Monday, we'll say that Dell uh, is the reason why NASDAQ didn't open. (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) And so that job was very demanding and I could plan for nothing. Someone would say, hey, my birthday's this weekend. Are you coming? I'm like, don't know. (laughs) I don't know if I'll be in town. And so eventually I relocated back to Austin by transferring and changing careers into something totally different. I was a product development engineer at AMD. It sounds like a fancy title, but basically I was the liaison between engineering and between marketing. And I help them talking to each other. Marketing says, hey, I want something fancy. And then engineering would <laughs> need to know, hey, here are some of the technologies that we're going to work on some of the transitions. Here mm-hmm. are the pluses and minuses of we can do a prototype really quickly and get something to show, but it will be something we have to continuously patch. Or this is something it'll take a long time for us to get first proof of work, but it'll be more stable in the end. And so taking the requirements and trade-offs and tracking and timeline and bug fixes and all of that stuff and working between the two groups. And so that was very, very new for me because all the work I did at Dell was basically all hardware. All the work that I did in this job for AMD was also like mostly software. So working with low-level software, like drivers to interactions between video and audio and images on the screen. So it was very very new and very different. I was at Dell um, for six years and I Mm -hmm. ended up being at AMD for five and a half years. Mm -hmm. The great thing about AMD, you talked about polywork, how it's like for Multi-hyphenates yeah people who have like a lot of different nuanced to titles. And while I was there, I was a recruiter for AMD for a bit. So a university recruiter. So I would go to the university.
0: Oh, that's did, awesome.
1: Yeah. And I did a lot of community work there as well. Some volunteering. And then one of the things that I also did was I was one of the founding members of AMD's social media committee. So Uh those who are trying to figure out how the company can use this newfangled thing called social media. (laughs) I'm I'm dating myself now about how, about when this was. And so (laughs) I was, (laughs) and surprise, surprise, this is not the first time someone has reached out to me and to say randomly, let's do an interview. So that was probably the first time when I was at AMD, I was on Twitter right when Twitter was still brand spanking new. And I tweeted all the time about my job because I love my job. I was a big fan of AMD before I worked there. And so I was super excited about the things that I was working on. I was like, oh, can you believe that I actually have this title? I'm an engineer. Um, uh, Callback. I never graduated from college. I I, I dropped out because I ran out of money. And so that's why I started my first job at, at Dell because I needed to pay for school. And so my plan to go to work for a semester and and then use the money that I got from working and then go back to school when I could have, when I had the funds, but that never ended up happening longer story. So I'll go back. And so I was at AMD I, every day I would tweet like something like, Oh, look at this new development or Hey, AMD's in the news today. Isn't it cool that we're doing better this quarter or we're releasing this new feature or something like that. And it was uh, really catchy and engaging because it wasn't super marketing and promoty, And it felt like a sneaky way of getting people to be excited about AMD, but it wasn't sneaky. I really was excited. And um, someone from uh, Forrester, Forrester Research, contacted me and said, hey, I would love to talk to you about what you and your strategy team are doing at AMD to really engage on social. I was like, who know huh. what now? <laughs> I was like, I'm just a guy. I don't... I don't. <laughs>
0: That's <laughs> so, so con- awesome. You're just a very excited guy about your job. That's- yeah.
1: So I contacted PR and say, hey, this person wants to talk to me. And it wasn't the only request. It was the, just the first request. And so eventually I got PR trained. So, I can talk to the press. And then that's when an SVP pulled me into his office saying, help tell, teach me how to use this Twitter thing. And then the group formed, and I was brought on to the group to help with kind of like giving my perspective of what are some of the best tactics and ways of using Twitter. And at the same time, I was doing a lot of my own knowledge and expansion of what social media is and how people use it and what companies do. So, I went to a lot of meetings. There was a social media club in Austin. There was uh, something called a social media breakfast that I went to. And I went to every Everything and anything that had to do with social and I soaked up all that knowledge. And that was basically my last three years while I was at AMD learning about social and I was like, let's do it. Let's make it real. And I switched careers again, did social media marketing for several different companies, mostly tech companies because I still love technology. It's not just something I did. It's something that I was really passionate about. So I did social for these companies and really got invested in the products that I worked on and just shared my passion as part of the strategy. A friend of mine who I used to go to the same social media club meetings with was at the head of global social media and influencer programs and IBM for IBM systems. And she said, we're doing this thing this newfangled thing called developer relations. Have you heard of it? I'm like, no. (laughs) But basically, it's being really outgoing and personable and technical and representing the company. And I think with your social media marketing background and your technical background, that would be a good fit for you. And I was like, yeah, that sounds exactly like me. And so that was my first job in developer relations was being a developer advocate for IBM. And at the time, IBM... Actually, that at the time, but still, IBM was kind of like a stodgy old, old brand that people didn't really know how it was relevant for their life or how anyone should pay attention to them. And so, I was um, my my the thing that I was tasked to do was just go out and just mingle, go into the communities saying, "Oh, you know, IBM does this. You know, IBM also does this." Or "IBM produces this software. Did you know that it it can help you with this?" So just finding opportunities to talk about it in a way that was natural and not overbearing and not super markety was kind of my role. Since it was the, I was the first in the job, I kind of like architected that role for IBM. So I was learning how to do it while I was doing it from other people and then trying to internally evangelize why this was a thing. So uh, almost every week, every other week, every month, I was not only creating the role, but defending the role and saying why it was so awesome. And then talking about here are best practices and kind of found my tribe because I found The community of people who are already doing it, talking to them, realizing all the different ways that DevRel can really impact a company and how it should work. And it turned out that DevRel was not a good fit for IBM because of its structured nature. It wasn't one where you can just make change. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I moved to several different companies doing a combination of developer relations as an advocate and doing developer relations as uh, a technical community manager. So one is out speaking and one is out like gathering. And so my current role is I'm head of community at a database company called Single Store. And so that is my journey.
0: And I'm going to take one minute to just dig this all in. (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm fascinated about the journey and all of the ways in which you sort of pivoted bit by bit and followed your instinct. I can't imagine that it's been easy for you every time you move into different direction that really feels like a departure from your previous role. In a keynote that you gave last year, you very aptly explained all of the ways in which you shifted identities in your life as saying, Wesley, one 1.0, point, one, one point oh, 1.1. One one. <laughs> and so I'd like to know, is there anything that helped you in making these choices?
1: yes. I would say, go, let's go back to when I was at AMD and I switched over mm. to doing social media marketing. That was a very different environment, different rule set, different cohort of people that you moved through uh, a career with. And I would say that the most stark and obvious person that helped me make that transition was my partner, my girlfriend at the time, and now my wife, where I was like, hey, I think this is interesting and I think I want to do it. And she said, okay, do it. It was just so effortless Mm -hmm. to her to just say, just to follow what I was passionate about. And one thing I want to highlight about each one of those transitions is that I was almost preparing for each transition from the previous role. And that with technology these days, it's not something that I planned for, but something that was invented along the way. Social media marketing wasn't really a thing when I was going to school. Developer relations wasn't a thing when I was doing social media marketing. And it's a continual learning and growing towards the things that I'm passionate about, not a means to an end. So I wasn't doing these things because I wanted to get those jobs. I was doing these things because I wanted to do these things. And so it's, I, I, in, in a way, it's less that I adapted to each role and more that each role was created to catch up to what path I was already on. So it, it was a, a transition in terms of mindset from knowledge and past experiences about how things were done. And I moved into a reliance on my own self instinct and moral compass and passion to how things should be. So Mm -hmm. I I think that's kind of been my journey of like seeing the world as a whole, as a total, and just trying to manifest the thing or the job or the environment that I want to be part of.
0: Hmm. I'm glad that you said the word passion because the one thing I can tell you for sure that I picked up on about your path and your personality I would guess if you ever do work on your core values that passion would come up Mm -hmm. (laughs) as one of your leading values and I'm sure that it is a major help in in making transitions in in sustaining a momentum even when things can feel difficult because it's not easy to
1: switch roles especially when when things are brand new. And I, I, we haven't talked about it yet, but I'm neurodivergent.
0: Uh, and so, I was about to come to that. Yes, please, please, please explain this.
1: I have dyslexia and I have also have ADHD. And there are some traits as I've become older and done more research. And it's really hard to be motivated when you have ADHD if you're not doing something you're passionate about or something Mm -hmm. that interests you. And so I couldn't ignore or sidestep how I got here without realizing that is a trait of something that's innate within me that has also been like a driving force to move me in this direction. Another trait of ADHD is a sense of justice and making sure that things are right. And I can't say that it's independent of being ADHD. I don't like to say it's something I have. It's something that's part of me. And I don't think you can unwind one trait or aspect without really mentioning the other.
0: Thanks so much for for bringing this up. So one of the one of the things that caught my eye when I saw your profile and watched the keynote is how you have become outspoken in explaining your journey in life as someone who didn't know Mm. what was wrong, what felt wrong for, for a number of years. And I have found it incredibly interesting to see a couple of the other places where you were interviewed with other people who are neurodivergent. Our society is starting to talk about this but so I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about how you chose to become outspoken and and to talk about it publicly.
1: So I wasn't diagnosed um until I was a sophomore in college. Uh, and so everything leading up to that I had no idea about dyslexia or or ADHD or any of that stuff. So growing up if I didn't understand something or I approached a problem differently than other people, I would be called weird, strange, stupid—some some really hurtful things. Where it 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 went beyond like one incident, but became one of those things where people who were in authority or people who had a lot of uh, sway were saying these things about me. And it, as a kid, hearing this from grownups, it's it's hard to say that I I don't have any words or even a leg to stand on to defend myself. So what they're saying must be right. And when I look at my peers and, you know, raise your hand if you think this is the answer, raise your hand if you think B is the answer. And I would always think of something else that didn't really fit the box. Like for instance, I say, if one crow flies away and then others follow, what are the reasons? One, the crow is scared. Two, the crow is scared and the other crows are following it. Three, the crows, all the crows are scared, but one just takes off before the other. Like all of these possibilities and I have to choose one. I was like, any of those are valid. So I don't know the answer. How would I know the answer? I'm not there. I didn't see what happened. So how can I? And so I would really, uh, in some ways, overthink or be able to think of the possibilities of all of the different ways that any of those could be the answer. And But for other people, it seemed to come easier for them. And they were like, oh, I know the answer. I still don't know the answer, by the way. That type of thought process would people were like, whoa, you're just weird. So one of those things where it's later in life where it becomes an asset, but when you're young and basically the the thing that limits or dictates your success is how much you blend in and not how much you stand out it was a real detriment to me to be othered. And also I'm black. I'm in the United States, which has not been necessarily a good thing. And yeah. so being it was another aspect of being othered that I was already othered. And also both my parents are, immigrants, which means I'm a first-generation American. And so their cultures, their routines, their habits, I also didn't fit in. So there's a lot of ways in which I was just the weird kid, and I always felt like I was going to be the weird kid. And my struggle for acceptance meant actually really paying attention to others. So, both indications that I'm doing something wrong, but also ways that I can mimic what they're doing to try to be accepted, was a big, big mental burden on me. Wow. So going forward to the, to the original question about like like how how that's shaped me and changed me, and this evolution of myself has been kind of a, a releasing of that stress or that shame of being who I am. And the process of being able to shed that and transition over has has shaped me in the point of where I've moved to a place of self-acceptance, where I went into leaning into the things that I'm good at has helped me transition into really having the confidence to rely on the thing that makes me different and hang my shingle on that rather than spending the mental energy to try to prop up all the ways and all the things that I don't do well. In 2020, I was fired from my job. Let's just call it what it is. And I was in an abusive situation at work where I was continuously gaslit. And so a lot of the things that had happened in my childhood in terms of being told, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I can't believe that you, you made it this far, really like landed like a brick. And so 2020 was a really hard time for me where, you know, just lost my job. There's a global pandemic. There is a renewed trauma of the racial injustice in this country by the passing or murder of George, George Floyd. The general outcry from regular people and then the, the faux support from corporations who say that racial justice is something that they champion in their companies and seeing a message from the company that had just fired me after s- severely being, let's say, abused by this company spark something in me and put me on a path of reading and learning to separate about what traits are me and what responsibilities society has In supporting me and what companies, according to their own structures and what they say they champion, what they're required to do to fulfill their own mandate. And learning the differences between who I am and what I am and the differences of what society and what systems are in place and how it's endemic and nothing that I can do or have done has has put me in this situation. It just was before I was there. And how my being is almost a front to the situation because it's not made for me. It's not both from a neurodiversity standpoint and for a racial standpoint and uh, a sense of like political equity standpoint. It was not made for me to be in it. And so the struggles that I have aren't necessarily because of who I am, it is because of the way the system was created and who it was created for. And I actually think I might have lost the thread of the question. So I kind of go off. So hopefully that's I answered okay, it.
0: Because I, I really appreciate you um coming to that point. So first I want to say, I'm very, very touched about the openness, the vulnerability and the honesty that you bring to the table. And that's what I had liked so much in the other interviews I had seen of you. And I feel personally so connected when you talk about that shame of not feeling good enough and and being put in situations where people around you are assigning you a label of not good enough, not this, not that, and how painful that is, especially when it re-triggers something that comes back from childhood. There's one thing about that keynote that I... So... Just for the people who haven't watched it, who are listening (laughs) to us, we'll get to talk about it a little bit more. But one of the essential elements that you've repeated many times is community shapes us, shapes who we are, helps shape our identity, or I guess, in a way, shapes the ways in which we feel that we don't belong. Right? Mm -hmm. And... I remember one particular moment where you talked about walking away when you realize that the community is also, you didn't didn't use the word toxic, but I will. When you find yourself in an environment that you can step away from to get yourself within a different space that can support you. Am I getting it right that this is something that you are now wanting to express to people in your advocacy?
1: Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of moral or situational environments that people find themselves in that there is an unwritten social contract that keeps them there. And I want to help free up people from being obligated to stay in toxic environments, relationships, families where there is an overwhelming amount of harm to them or to their mental health or their well-being. One example personally is that my father um, was very mentally abusive to me. And so I left that relationship. I am estranged from my dad. And in a way that makes it so that I feel that severing that relationship Almost similar to the construct of like, he's not that way because of me. He is that way because of him and that I do not fit in, in the structure that he's created in terms of how I can be myself and be accepted. So I'm not, I think I talked about it in that, in that talk about like, I'm not a what, quote unquote man's man. I, I don't. Do all the like masculine stuff that people expect or society expects of me, and so I don't feel like I can fit into his his structure of what's acceptable.
0: Oh, that's um, yeah, that's a that's a big deal. I, I really appreciate that you explained that actually, because from the outset, there are so many things that we don't know when we see someone walking on stage and and talking about community and it's very daring to come back and just to remember that community is also our nuclear family, where we grow up, where we get a sense of, of what we're allowed to do and not allowed to do. Mm-hmm. I was actually fascinated that you were able to extract yourself from this situation and, and follow your dream. But then again, you're passionate. So I guess that you have the inner drive, right? To, to go towards what, what you feel is right for you.
1: Yes. And I, I think the experience of trying is also something that I like doing regardless of success or regardless of, when I say success, I mean the external outwardly appearance of success to other people. The journey is is part of the process. I, I know that's so cliche, but <laughs> I've been able to do things that people don't understand and fail at them. And so when I have conversations about those same things, like running for office, for instance. I have a a really good, intimate understanding of the subject, even if I wasn't quote-unquote successful, because of understanding and really embodying the process where it's like in my bones and not Mm -hmm. something I read, but something I experienced. Mm. And so that experience itself is so useful for me. It's so... It's part of me. And I like having that integration of different experiences and it being in my bones and my soul so that I can draw upon that knowledge, sometimes reactionary or reflective, but but also like it's something that's just integrated into like every approach, like bringing and drawing all of my approaches from these different domains because I was able to, you know, to kind of like try these things, not necessarily have them be my career or even a hobby, be able to just experience and inhabit these things as if I've watched a whole bunch of movies and now I know Kung Fu. No, it's more like (laughs) I've been able to, to, yes, that would be fun. But it's more of like going to a karate class, being in a tournament, losing a tournament, and then understanding what is the lead up to that and what is the experience like and what does the adrenaline feel like to be in on a stage or in competition in front of a lot of people. The karate thing is, I just made that up. So don't look, at it. but, but just, awesome. that, that's just an, just an example of like just doing something. And I re, here's an example. I, re, I learned as a kid that someone told me, I don't even know if this is true. They said only 10% of the world's population can lift their own body weight. Like, Whoa. I want to be part of the 10% and I, I did it. Or like, you know, like only so many percentage of people can do 20 push push-ups, And I was like, Oh, I can do that. And just finding myself in these little categories where I figure out that uh, those were all fitness challenges, but there's also experiences like jumping out of a plane and parachuting that people just don't do. And I love feeling like I can gather all these different experiences and just enjoy them.
0: That's really wonderful. I really appreciated the way that you talked about embodiment. So you go through the step of trying, you go and experience, then you integrate the experience. And so once it's part of you, you are able to to pull on that whenever it becomes useful. And I think that this speaks to the polymath in you, right? It feels like this is something that you've learned how to find joy from. And I was going to say success, but I don't mean outward success. Just mm-hmm. find your way through things because you're able to, to tap into all of who you are rather than pushing bits of you away. Um, that speaks to me a lot. So you did mention in passing that you ran for city council. Can you please tell us that story? Because I am very, very keen to hear it.
1: Yes. Um, I, I don't want it to come off as though I have an idea and then I do them, <laughs> like just randomly. <laughs> like, oh, what is it, Tuesday? Let me run for office. I. No, um, sorry.
0: I hope that's not <laughs> how I said this stuff. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I just like, I do so many different things and I just don't want to seem like I'm a split Brain person that can't decide on one thing. It's more like uh, I'm a I'm a base and, and so I I let possibilities happen, but I I do do my due diligence, and so so in 2013 I did this program called Leadership Austin. So in in the 70s there was a lot of leadership x and just fill in the x with a city a metropolitan city leadership miami leadership new york leadership whatever and these groups were made by the chamber of commerce of these respective cities to gather influence and help shape leaders in these areas and so when the chamber of commerce wanted to push through an idea they would have a rolodex Of people who are influencers, who are in places of power that they could reach out to and help lobby for whatever their initiative is to help that actually become a reality. And the Leadership Austin chapter splintered away from the Chamber of Commerce in Austin and just became a leadership training program for the city where it's 10 months, where it's a very extensive leadership program, where they accept only 60 people a year from the entire city, from different professions, different groups that they have already demonstrated leadership. And so I joined this group, I applied, got in, met a lot of people who were lawyers or nonprofits or teachers who did so many different things that we all learn together, not just how to be a leader, but a leader of leaders, which is also a very unique skill when you're in a room full of people who want to take the reins and do their own thing. Being able to focus that group was something that I learned and that was where I got exposure to understanding that the legacy or the alumni of this group, a lot of them were city council people and that it was made known early that this was a possibility because of the the people have gone through the program and the amount of influence that they have created and the amount of support that was almost inherent from going through the program. And and so when I ran for the 2016 election, there was a series of economic changes. If you're familiar with Austin, it's almost like another tech hub like San Francisco. Yeah,
0: and um, I'm familiar with it. It's very hyped up at the moment. I know lots of people have moved there, even from New York, from L.A.,
1: a, yeah, it's,
0: a great it, lifestyle.
1: <laughs> great lifestyle, great place to raise a family. It still was economically obtainable to own a home at that time but becoming less so and people were being pushed out of the city center where a lot of these tech companies are building their headquarters or closer to the the outskirts of the city because of home prices and also traffic was becoming really really bad in the city. And the representative and my district which was district 2 didn't seem terribly too concerned with the the flagship or the that banner on austin being a really great place and the difference between the tagline and in our specific community how it was not very equitable because this boom was not reaching everyone everywhere and so i wanted to run for office because of my roots in the tech community, and also my roots in my own community, and seeing the differences and understanding how the the way things were didn't have to be the, that way, and how policies were just really focused on the top end, bringing in these big companies with these masses amount of budget to build headquarters and to, to to say that, you know, we're really going all in on tech, but the policies were bringing people into the city center, these companies by giving them massive tax breaks, which more people were moving to Austin, but the taxes were still going up. So we are having a expanding tax base with an extended like tax bill. And it kept going in that direction where we're amassing more money that we're then just handing over to corporations And then that cycle will just keep going. And so I wanted to try to change things to make sure that people who were in the city could take advantage and not just be, I I, I guess, just resources for these massive tech companies. And I love tech. I mentioned that before, but I think that there's always better ways of doing things. Austin is very attractive. We didn't need subsidies to bring companies in. So I wanted to end those. Also moving headquarters from city center to other places. If we were going to give some subsidies, let's help them move to not downtown. All of these Trucks and cars are moving to are driving downtown at the beginning of the day and then leaving at the end of the day, which causes massive, massive pileups, accidents, and just delays and pollution. And if we had all of these hubs, these headquarters around the city, then people can live next to where they worked. And they wouldn't have to all go to the same place, and so we would be able to have these neighborhoods, these restaurants, these retail chains around these new headquarters around the city be able to take part. Even if they weren't directly in tech, they would be influenced by the people who lived in the area and the 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 type of of people being able to patronize these businesses that that were in their little neighborhoods and reduce traffic, increase the wealth disbursement around the city. And that was basically my platform. Let's make Austin for everyone and not just Austin for these people who have all this money to spend uh, because they're in tech.
0: Thanks so much for, for talking me through this. It sounds like a problem I would imagine a lot of other cities around the world are having when they are trying to attract businesses and the difficulties that comes with money and gentrification and stuff like that. How was the experience of running and how was the experience even at that local level of, of politics for you? Mm.
1: Mm. I mentioned before that I don't necessarily think like anyone else, like everyone else. And I Which lived is in Texas. Great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're talking. <laughs>
1: So Texas is notorious for being a red state and Austin is notorious for being oh, a blue really? dot.
0: Yeah. No, I'm kidding. I know.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a big secret. I don't know if I'm breaking news here. Um, but so when I, the city council is a non, let's say party r- race. You, you, you could be. It, it, oh, you
0: that's to, awesome. I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. So you don't need to be a Republican or a Democrat and you don't need to identify and it's not listed on the ballot or anything. So I, Was when I lived in Texas a registered Republican. The reason for that is because I wanted to, in order to vote in primaries, you can only vote in the primary that you're registered under. And I didn't like a majority of Republicans. And so I registered as a Republican so I can vote in the primaries to help eliminate those who I thought was like not good. And because to me, it makes sense. Like it doesn't matter. That's
0: so smart. That's so smart. (laughs) Love how you think.
1: If everyone did this, then we would have better Republicans running. At least, if Republican is going to win anyway, I would like to choose the best of the of the worst anyway. And so, when I ran, me being registered as Republican was really bad. (laughs) They didn't like it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and no, and no one bought my explanation. They said, "Oh, I'm just making this up because I got quote unquote caught." And so that was Mm -hmm. really hard. (laughs) And I also learned how much of state politics played in the city race. There were a lot of city positions that were influenced by money and people who are in the state legislature because it was seen as a staging ground, breeding ground, or the beginning of where someone could graduate up to. And so there's money poured down and influence poured down on these races to help with kind of like shaping people and races so that they can get the people they want. And it's seen as a favor to be paid back as they progress through their career. And so me being outside that influence made it really hard for me sure to, to do things because of the support of, The incumbent I was running against an incumbent, which is also not the smartest thing, but I was running against incumbent because I, I thought I could do a better job. So I I learned a lot about the process and how nasty it can get and how the system where, (laughs) um, they make it so, um, when you do these town forums that I think you see these, these, the, the debates, uh, the national debates where people go after their opponent. But this, in the city races, you're not supposed to address your opponent at all. You can only talk about your own record. And so you can't really contrast directly. And so following the rules, it made it harder for me to really say what I would do different or why I was better than my opponent because I couldn't really use my opponent's name in these opening speeches or addressing these questions, which made it really hard. So I, I learned a lot about how the machine actually works and how why it's so hard because of the way that the financing and elections work. And so it's it made it so like it was really hard just to get started and I didn't have that understanding before actually doing it.
0: Well, listen, I really appreciate you. Um, First of all, congratulations for trying because a lot of us have vision and most people I know, I mean, everyone I know has a lot of things to say about how government runs things or cities um, are run Countries, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and and mm-hmm. we don't necessarily do that much. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's quite wonderful to see someone who decided to, you know, actually act according to your vision and your values, and and to try and do something different. Would you ever consider doing that again in the future? I wonder.
1: Probably not. It was really hard on my family uh, because I I did have a full time job. It was me and my treasurer. I never went, all the support that I thought I had. Kind of like. People didn't want to be involved. So, um, like in the tech community, no one wanted to publicly support me because I was running against an incumbent and they didn't want to anger the incumbent or have their name associated. So all these friends that I had, they didn't want to take a chance on me. And people would say, Hey, let me know if you need anything. Hey, I need something. Oh no, I'm busy. It's just like oh, wow. those <laughs> all those like promises were a lot of them were empty. And so in the morning before work, I would do all my reading. So I'd read all the news, all the local news, and then do read, uh, watch some back. Uh, recordings of city council meetings where my opponent was talking and what referendums that they voted for or didn't vote for and figure out exactly what their stance on things and hear all the constituents. I would get approached all the time from people from like the bicycle lobby to the tech lobby or to the chamber lobby of like, hey, we'd like to interview you to see if you're one of the candidates we would endorse. And so I'd have to fill out these giant forms of like, answer these questionnaires about how my stance on different issues. Wow. And so I did a lot of that in the mornings and then do my job in the day and maybe take a break to go to a forum that was being held by either the official debates or a forum held by um, any, political political group that were doing debates and wanted to like talk to the candidates kind of things. And I would do those. And then at night I would work with different contractors for different things. Like I I paid someone for my logo. I paid someone to help design my website. I, I paid to have like some copy editing done. So I would work with those people that would have to Pay and then also do outreach for fundraising, which is a big chunk of it because that was keeping me going. Then I would do my own social ads, do my own lawn signs, and then do my own door knocking, which also took a lot of time to walk the neighborhoods and knock on doors, had some t shirts made and stuff like that, and passing out signs and working with the printers. It sucked up a ton of time. And keep in mind that this was something that I was close to, this is something I was passionate about, and this is something I actually had some concrete ideas of how to change. If there is a, something that would be something I'm really passionate about and something I feel like I can actually make a difference. And I had the support and I had the finances and I was able to be able to to take the lessons that I learned and incorporate for those things that I didn't know about maybe, but it, it is a big endeavor. It's not something that you just sign in and turn in some forms and then it's done. Learning also that people don't care about the same things you care about and know the same things you know about, I would knock on doors and people would know that there was an election. And some people wouldn't know there was an election. Some people would know what district they're in. Some people would not. Some people have never heard of the city council or what they did or all the ways that my opponent had neglected them because they have jobs, they have lives. They wake up, they go to work, they kick tear their family and they do it all over again and politics is not front and center and to into necessarily the thing that they are aware of and crossing that rubicon of getting people to understand how it affects them have them understand that They have a voice and that they should care about something. And then that then to motivate them to go through all of the steps, which Texas is notorious for making it hard for people to vote, go through all those steps and then show up and make time in their day or to take time off their jobs to do this thing where they don't then understand the ripple effects of what their impact actually did. It's just it was it was very, very hard. And I now understand that there's a lot of pre-work that probably would need to be done before really running for office to make sure that pe- there is a groundswell of people yeah. who actually are educated and learn and, and know about the stuff to participate.
0: Mm. Um, you mentioned that you're married, you, you have kids as well, right?
1: Yes, I have a son who's nine and a daughter who is six.
0: Oh, okay. fantastic. So I wonder, do you think that their generation, I know they're tiny, but do you think they're going to see things any differently than, than we do?
1: Oh, they already do. Yeah. When we were kids, I'm sure we had television, we had movies, and we would think that the people who got on television and who were in movies, it it was a privileged position that they had to work towards, they had to be selected for, and something that they would have to, it's not super easy. It's my kids don't have that feeling because they see YouTube and they're like, well, let's just make a YouTube video and just put it out there. So in terms of the the controllers of who gets on the radio or who gets on television, they feel that they have that power because I can play something that they recorded as a cute song through our speakers. That is, is the same speakers that play music. So it seems as if the medium is open for everyone. So the spectrum is, is wider and more welcoming in some ways. And being able to 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 watch cartoons and to watch reality and being able to distinguish the difference between the two is through the eyes of a kid is something that is also explaining what is real and what is not real because when you see a slick high quality sci-fi movie you know that's not real but then we're also in the age where you see a news report or you see a headline and you have to be able to say, okay, let's think about that. Could that be fake? And that is the difference between the burden that I think my parents had to what I have as a parent to be able to tell my kids that, okay, you're watching this YouTube thing. You see that they're talking about this product a lot. This, you realize this is product placement. This is an ad. They don't genuinely believe all this stuff. And so the, with this accessibility, it's great, but also this caveat of skepti- that that they have to basically need to learn to question everything, which is they don't have the comfort of knowing that the world is what they see and that they m- must be vigilant to really not their let let their guard down to 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 separate reality and the world and they're not the same.
0: Thanks. I'm glad I went that way. (laughs) I wanted to talk about communication. And actually, I was wondering about how you approach parenting as someone who is neurodivergent and also how you explain this to your children. I'd love for you to talk us through as well. And this is, I know I'm piling on the question here, (laughs) how you have learned to express different ways in which you can and would like to be communicated to in order to address some of the ways in which you process information? Wow. Sorry, excuse me. I knew it was <laughs> a big one. I'm like, I know, i have told a lot. I'm
1: sorry. No worries. It's one thing is that I should explain that my partner is neurotypical and is an amazing parent. And I do my best to fa- follow her lead. And I think that she sees things I don't just because our, our kids are kind of like, feels like they're both, they're all different. There feels like they're truly a part of us. And so there's some ways that I can really connect with my kids that she can't. And there's ways that she definitely sees things and understands what's their, what they're going through that I just don't. And I would say without her, it would be really hard to parent in general. You know, I bring this up from like, Knowing that, you know, as a parent, we kind of draw on our own experience as kids and our own parents are examples, whether or not they're good examples or not. And so being able to not fall back on the things of that we were taught is really, really hard. And so. We try to counterbalance each other, but I have to say that she she has, I would like to say an instinct for this, but she's also extremely, extremely smart. One of the smartest people that I've ever met. She has two master's degrees and a doctorate. If I was with anyone else, I don't know if I could have a person help with arbitrating my perception with my kids' realities too. And being able to bridge and have a conversation with someone who has the vocabulary to explain this. And so she is truly the best partner. In terms of parenting with my kids, I am able to sometimes see things that they see too, and I'm able to explain some things or show them things that they haven't seen or noticed. And I think that my, the way that I observe things allows me to explain things that are nuanced from an observation standpoint of like, did you see that? I bet this is what's going on because I try to deconstruct how things are made. Like this, the video example that I talked about, but my wife will observe An interaction with another kid or my kids with me, and then see their face change, hear their tone change, see that their body changes. And because of my neurodiversity, I may not pick up on those. And then she'll be able to sit us both down and saying, Hey, how do you feel talking to our our children and help them express and then help bridge the gap between, like if I sigh. It's not a sign of frustration. It's my own personal soothing and relaxing. Me not able to necessarily control what I'm communicating and be able to explain that most of that communication is internal and not really meant to be external. So it is a struggle and it's hard, but it's one that would be impossible without my partner.
0: Thanks so much for talking me through that. So let's go back to part two of my super long, hard question that made no sense earlier. (laughs) It's a leading question because I heard an interview uh, with, I think the podcast was called Workology. And you talked about some of the things you were able to work on with HR departments that were supportive of someone who is neurodivergent. Well <laughs> you can talk to me about the challenges and the, the things that worked and the things that didn't cuz as someone who was a manager for many years I feel like I would have greatly benefited from hearing some of these
1: ideas I think we're we're, we're just getting started with how people and organizations understand not just diversity, but inclusion, and that includes the workplace and making it a space for people who are neurodivergent, because I think accommodations, the way it's trained or professionalized in the HR space, it usually has to do with people who have physical disabilities. So if visual impairment uh, or mobility impairment or even some ergonomic, changes that they need to make it easier for them to work. And that is an environment that's almost onto the individual. So it's not made in relation to other people. So neurodivergent people, which I don't want to speak for everyone, but in my experience, a lot of the accommodations that I actually require or need have to do with interfacing with other groups or other people, which requires not only a a change on that other person, but an organizational awareness and a duty to make sure that that is done and taken care of. And one of the changes that I required in my current role was to have goals that are in SMART format And I forget what even what the acronym means, but basically that it is simple, measurable, attainable, and able to record it. And it's time bound. I'm making some of these notes, but (laughs) but it's it's one of those things where it's like, I need to have a defined goal that needs to be attainable instead of, um, for instance, let's take my current role, head of community. What is community? And community can be defined as two people in a room or the whole entire world. And so it needs to be defined exactly of what are the community that that I am in charge of. And measurable, can you say how many people are happy in the community? You could with some sort of survey, but you need to understand what metric am I hitting? Is it a one to five scale and I need to hit most an average of four, average of three? How, how, what percentage of the community needs to fill out this form to, for it to be representative? I don't know. So it needs to be some sort of thing that could be measurable. People click on a link that's measurable, right? Some things are easier to measure than others and it needs to be time bound. I mean, is this in the quarter? Is this in a, in a year? Like what, when I need to really do this thing under what time circumstances? When will it be due? Sometimes in the past, I've, I've gotten feedback such as you're not where we want you to be. Or, I need you to step up your game, or I need you to participate more. These are what I call subjective goals that don't fit in smart format, and that they people, because I'm different, those subjective goals or observations have been used as a club against me, where people like, I don't know, he's a little off, but I can't, I don't know why or how. And so I'll just use he makes me feel weird or he doesn't do at his job. And I would be able to say, well, look, I've doubled or tripled our engagement, or I've I've increased our retention rate by this. And I would have all of these numbers by any measure shows that I'm doing my job and it's successful. But then I would, th- these things would come out of left field about like how I'm not doing my job or like I was too assertive or I, I, I don't know. The, these things would come up and I'm like, what? Why is that even related? And so that's why a combination free me is that I have goals that are in a smart format that people need to actually write down what they expect of me. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually doing the thing that they want me to do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so this ask has evolved. I think my one of my first asks was like a screen reader. And a text-to-speech program so that I can dictate my papers or write-ups or emails. And as I move through, like it was easier to me, I guess, or I thought the biggest of my two conditions, I thought being dyslexic was the thing that was holding me back the most. And I've transitioned to realize how much ADHD has changed how I do my job because I I need to know what to do when, and in order for me to prioritize my work. I need this, this thing that I know that I'm working towards, something that will be rewarded or be appreciated because when I turn in something or do the work and I hear, oh, that's not what I expected or that's not what I wanted, that is a real dejection for me and really takes a blow to my motivation, which makes it harder to do my job. It works on multiple facets. And so I, it's something that I feel is not just a nice to have, it's it's something if I don't know that I'm working towards something that is expected and I have all this anxiety of like, oh my gosh, am I doing the right thing? If I'm tackling the right problem in the eyes of the person I'm doing it for, then that, that can be an issue. Going back, uh, just if I, if I could, little aside. Of course. When I worked for a company that was a big competitor to Slack, I did this thing where I was really friendly to them and we talked a bit and then I built up a relationship with them which relationships take time and I understand that that's a process. For people who were looking on the outside, they may not have understood or saw that this was a gradual ramp to an end result. Instead, they wanted this thing that was almost automatic or like in and itself gave a result. And yeah. so me and my approach to things uh, is more like we need to nurture this relationship as opposed to, oh, you did something? hire the How come they're not your friends because you sent a friend request? I, I, it, I know it doesn't work that way and I know it needs to work towards that. And that's an example of where towards the end, by the time I left, everything that I wanted to do was checked off and everything in the results you were seeing was proven. But they didn't see it at the beginning because they could not understand something that was extremely obvious to me about what needed to happen to get there.
0: Yeah. Well, I I worked in PR communications and and social media for a long time. And I want to tell you that I feel like this is a problem that a lot of people are having because you have to cultivate relationships in order to get results. And yet most larger companies, as as you very well know, want to see data. They want to see results in, in, in data format. And sometimes you cannot give that even though you are doing everything right. So that said, I wanted to ask you about what it's like to work in community now versus what it was like for you when you started, because it must be a wild ride uh, in terms of the evolution of what even the word community means, right?
1: Yeah. Community, when I started, was you're on social and you interact and let people know you're there. And being a community manager would be like, you come up with a post, you spend some time Thinking about what is the thing that you want people to action, like click a link or to to read an article or whatever, or to buy a product. You try to put it in a place where those people were, and then that was it. You would see it roll in, you would hear some of the feedback or comments, and then roll in those changes into the next time saying, Oh, I know people will be mad if I say this word or this person, or I know that they really connect with this type of language or this type of hopeful message. Uh, and then at the and then it graduated to you. You, you need to if you want engagement, you need to have an image attached to your copy. And so now you have to be good at Photoshop and and and, and image editing and make sure that you have like uh, a gallery of images or stock photos that you could draw upon to edit and to do everything. And then oh no, video is what's really engaging. And then oh, the video needs to be short and make sure that it's really captures the attention, but on mute because it's going to not play audio. So you need to make sure that even with no audio that your video is engaging. And then moved into optimizing for search engines to make sure that people who are not on the property could find it. And then it moved over into buying ads and making sure that you understood your segmentation. And then it moved to type fonts and then it moved to taking the same thing and then Making sure it's in multiple formats, and that you understood the long tail and um, and <laughs> and 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 so all of these things were being piled on to the role. And so a social media manager now is different than a social media manager back then because of all the things that they're required to know and do, and how the roles evolved to not only has the weight of what the skill level needs to be, but it's also feel like it's commoditized to the point where they think they can get anyone to do it. And so that the pay rate has also like really taken a nosedive because they feel, well, anyone could do TikTok or anyone can do YouTube. It's almost like if you're a a race car driver, it's like anyone can drive a car. And just because they see people doing it, they don't understand all of the skill and work that is to get to the point where, yeah, I did a, a, a two minute TikTok. It took me. 36 hours to do, and they don't. <laughs>
0: they yeah, I make completely that math. agree.
1: Yeah. And, and so it's changed a lot because when the accessibility of people doing the stuff, and where you don't need like a huge computer or a giant facility or a, a record label to. Do this, they feel because it is democratized in that sense that the, the knowledge and expertise is also democratized. So, a community manager, oh, you just make a forum or whatever, or, and then what, how hard could it be? People don't really know that it, it can be extremely hard to do it right. Yes, anyone can do it. But do you do it in a way that's sustainable, that's scalable, that that really curates the people that you want to come to your community and to make sure there's a sense of safety and care so that a rogue actor doesn't disrupt your community? There's a, a really great book called The Art of Gathering.
0: Yeah, by like Priya Parker.
1: Priya Parker, who yeah. I saw at South By, which is awesome. She's amazing. Ooh. Um Um, that really talks about like, you know, if you don't take ownership or you neglect a space or you neglect an item that you're making someone else in the community or someone else in the environment say like, well, this is the role of how you do X, Y, or Z, the thing that doesn't have that attention. So you're you're ceding power to someone else if you don't take that responsibility and uh, take that benevolent uh, care of saying, this is a structure that's acceptable or not. And if you're just doing a community, you may not know that, that this all of this domain and all of the people, you're a caretaker, you're a facilitator. You don't control them, but you do control the environment. And that's something that, that can help get you to the conversations that you want to have.
0: Thanks so much for explaining it like that. Because it's you used really important keywords for me. The word care, the word benevolent, I think that behind that, I'm also sensing you need to have a clear intention of what kind of interactions you want to foster within that community. And recently i I became involved with a very interesting company. it's It's very early days for me to to support them. and it was interesting to note that they hadn't been introduced to this idea. it's It's about giving them guidelines so that they know the community uses. How they can and how they should be interacting, and also what's not going to be accepted, right? Because I feel like it's hard to really engage in any community if you don't feel safe. So I think safety would be probably another key word or respect.
1: Yes. And external, like hues of what's acceptable or not, but internal policies about when things get violated, what's going to happen, what it's going to look like. Yeah. Um, I, I think the the week that we're talking just yeah. last weekend, those, the Oscars and Will Smith assaulted the person on stage, Chris Rock. And as more information's coming out about what happened and what was in the timeline. And then the Academy said that they asked Will Smith to leave. And he said, no, And also someone went on, someone literally went on stage and assaulted someone and security didn't come out. And the host was, was good enough to be able to adjust and just kind of roll with it. Mm. And is that expected of everyone? I don't know. Of every host, they have to be expected that they could be assaulted. Nothing will happen to the person who assaulted them. And then they just need to continue the show like nothing happened. And so now they have to do the hard thing of like, after the fact, all right, how we're going to punish this to show that it was something that is going to be retaliated against, saying you cannot do this during our show. But they didn't do the pre-planning and the pre-thought to know and act right when it happened. And that is also a, a form of harm uh, and signals that you can do whatever you want and the repercussions will come possibly at a later date.
0: Yeah. Well, I find even most shocking is the standing ovation. I find that harder to consider everything else. But coming back to what you had said earlier about your dad being a man's man, I feel like this, you know, what we expect or tolerate from a man's behavior when it's protecting or or supporting family, wife or country is something that I find really hard to accept as a person and something that probably we all need to have a conversation around. Because I was thinking, what if it had been a woman? What if a woman had shown up and gone and punched Chris Rock for, for her partner being attacked? Wouldn't everyone call her crazy? Would she have gotten a stunning ovation?
1: Yeah, we talked to like when I was speaking with my dad about the societal norms made that an option for Will Smith <laughs> to do made him so that that is a possibility and not only that it was the thing that he thinks that he should have done mm-hmm. but also let's, let's talk about the societal norms that kept everyone in their seat and watched this happening the societal norms like you were like you're talking about the standing ovation and everyone the the powerful force of how society shapes us mm-hmm. makes that whole situation possible with the people who did the deed and the people who didn't do anything because the organizers of The Academy, their thought of like, well, no one would do this was because taking for granted the societal norm saying, well, we just said that you can't do bad stuff. And so no one will Mm. do bad stuff because we've said it and not putting the things in place to ensure that that stuff does or does not happen. Mm. I think that lack of going back to why did the crow fly away and thinking of those possibilities, this is where... Diversity on multiple forms could have possibly maybe not prevented this from happening, but may have given the right response at the right time to at least protect some people. And and some of the victims that fell, that that were part of this, of course, Will Smith, Chris Rock, they both are being harmed. Chris, Chris Rock was not super innocent in this. He did make an offensive joke. He's apologized. Will Smith has apologized. But also, like, think of the people who are sitting next to Will Smith, a person who just assaulted someone and they have to sit next to them. Think of the people who work the event, you know, who hands the trophies to the winners. They had to do this. They had to hand the trophy over to someone who they know is could be dangerous. And then he won an Oscar for King James And no one's talking about that movie. No one's talking about Venus and Serena. I say no one, but like I just say that his actions overshadowed and harmed them where it could be their moment to really shine and use this to uplift the work and their journey as in their career and they're being harmed. Mm -hmm. And the Academy Awards, all these good moments that are just leaking out with with, uh, Lady Gaga and Liza Minnelli, for instance, Mm -hmm. like those like I barely saw that. It barely has like a little bit of a blip of the news cycle because of this thing that he did. And it'd be much better off if Will Smith removed after assaulting Chris Rock mm. and then everything else that that followed.
0: Yeah. I feel particularly sad for Coda
1: yeah. because it's yeah. a film
0: that's making history as well. And and hopefully in the days to come, more more attention will come to all of those sort of highly deserving prize winners as as things settle down. But now we've talked about that, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what you think helps build a thriving community.
1: Well, I mentioned the environment already. The other is a clear target objective of who's invited. And when you talked... When you talk about community, it is a collection of people with like-minded feelings, thoughts, or interests, but you also need to make sure that you draw a bright red line about who is not in the community. So that is just as important as saying who is welcome by also saying who and what behaviors are not welcome. And it's important to make sure that in a community that... I mentioned about rules. It's funny how we keep coming back to that, that it's enforced in a way that's predictable and equitable for everyone. Because if someone is, because they have a lot of following, they have a lot of influence that they can skirt the rules and nothing will happen to them. Then you're making a power dynamic where it's not participating in a way that's most important. It's more like gathering your own little fiat of people that's more important than, that can circumvent these rules. So having a set of behaviors and rules that you want to uh, incentivize is really great. And speaking of incentives, figuring out ways to reward positive behavior. So I think every community should have things that are done that really show not only do we want you to do these things, but it's highly valued. So it can be sometimes it's monetary reward, sometimes it's a t-shirt or stickers, but even just a shout out, a thank you, or just clicking the like on a comment all of these are rewards and reinforcements of positive behavior. And in order for a community to really be a community and be sticky, it's not just people being there. It's that people are there to interact with others who are also in the community. So make sure that any community has a space where this interaction is actually encouraged and a place where people can do The things that make them themselves. It's not just the thing you gather around, but the thing that makes you a person that's important. And so sharing these aspects that really connect us from an intimate part is where you want to make sure that people feel free to share the thing that are little, that's outside of the group, so that people can be less homogenous, but more detailed in their presentation of themselves. And then what you also want to do is make sure that your community is sticky. So if you're a sewing group, make it so that it's an environment that you go to, not just because you want to talk about sewing, but you love talking to other people who are in the group. So I think a a lot of the groups that I go to, or I'm a part of, we all gather for the same reason. And sometimes it's almost an excuse to get together, but we are there for the people and the community gives us the space and the permission to do this on a regular basis. And I think any community should have that kind of aspect.
0: Thanks so much for sharing. I think that there's a lot of amazing advice for people. And I know that right now, most brands are worried about just that because it's not just about sales nowadays. It's about, well, finally, I'm hoping a lot of people are paying attention to loyalty and how to build it, right? It's not just about how much money you can make, but the quality of the relationship, the durability of those relationships with your clients. And we all want community with a business. I'd love to ask you, with all of the talk about how the metaverse is going to be developing and how there are different aspects or ways into community through different or new portals, what would you like to see be the future of community building? Mm.
1: Um, I mentioned that the community manager builds an environment. And when you're talking about the metaverse, it's actually literally building an environment um, yeah, for people. Yeah,
0: building worlds. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I, I think with this open canvas, it'd be nice to allow a way for people to self-assemble and build these own environments. I mentioned that you have to come up with rules in which you say who's, who's in and who's out um, with an environment where you can actually really dictate who you don't want in your environment and who you do. These, in, these communities can be self-assembling based on shared models of rules and things that people do want and explicitly don't want. I think these algorithms can work to bring people together who are like-minded because they're able to articulate what their mind is. So, if I never ever want to see a racist, homophobic, transphobic remark ever, or be around people who have said any of these, these things ever, I should be able to really outline those things and not see or not have to deal with those people who fall into the areas where I just, I'd rather not interact with them. And so that my metaverse can be filled with people that will make it feel safe and welcoming to me. The the same with other people, if they don't ever want to see or deal with a person that crosses their red line or is the thing that can trigger a memory. Like for instance, I don't like, let's say I'm a scared of birds. I don't ever want to see birds in the metaverse that should be allowed to allow people to be able to, to find and create their own, safe space or bubble so that they can interact with those who violate their own social contract. I I think the world is a huge place. It's a giant place making it smaller in some ways is not necessarily super limiting when we're talking about all the different options of people that are available. And if I'm going to go into a new space that is going to be based on technology, I should be able to make it a place of my own. Because if I do want to interact with those types of people, it's not like I'm doing something where that prevents me from doing that. In the real world, it's only in this virtual space. So it's not, so if people might say, well, the world's not like that. Well, you're going to have to have thicker skin or you have to deal with all this uh, harassment because that's kind of what the world's like. You just have to get used to it. You don't if it's something where you're making a new space. Some of the things that really, really anger you or can cause you mental harm, you don't need to expose yourself to that. And I would love to be able to have that option of saying, you know, I just can't today. I just, my bag of spoons is empty and I don't want to give out to anyone else. And so I'm going to go to a place where I know it will be enriching to my life and not send me in a deep depression spiral.
0: I'm so happy that you went down this road because First of all, that's a metaverse that totally feels engaging to me. So I think it's a really great way for people to envisage what it could mean for each of us to find a space that is essentially kind of what we talked about earlier, stepping into communities that do foster a sense of wanting to support who is with them Mm -hmm. Uh, a way of feeling held, a feeling seen, and and making that choice, at least having the possibility some part of the day to make that choice, to feel supported and that the people near you want to see you thrive.
1: Yeah. And handing over the control to the individual instead of the organization. Mm -hmm. Like there might be, I might be in a lot of white spaces a lot. And maybe I want to go to Metaverse saying, no white people. I mean, it sounds racist, but it's just like, I just, I just need a lot of black people right now. You know, just let's put it in the positive. I just need to have that experience in that community. And so just, I just want to be in a space where I don't feel like I stick out so much. And that can be therapeutic. And we're like, let's say I'm super racist. Let's say that. And I don't want to see any black people. Sure. Have your virtual space where you can do that. And Maybe that's healthy, maybe that's not healthy. but that's, I'm going to leave it up to the person to experience the world in the way that they want to, because it's a virtual world. The rules do not have to apply and it can be in a way that makes people be where they want to be. And also let's say like, I just came out of a super religious environment and I feel like I'm recovering from this and I don't want to see anyone who is affiliated with any religion ever. It doesn't have to be like something that is permanent. It could be a filter. It could be a setting that you turn on, turn off as you need it, depending on your day or your hour. It it doesn't have to be a permanent flag. But if it's a world that you want to see of your own making, I think inherently whatever makes you feel safe and welcome and feel good is is what we kind of need.
0: Yeah, to recharge ourselves. I liked your bag of spoons metaphor. Yeah. (laughs) So um, before I go to my closing questions, I wanted to ask you about your affiliation with South by um, Southwest because I was supposed to go a few years ago. I had to cancel for another trip, and then I moved back to Europe and and left corporate world. And and so I have never had the opportunity to go. And it does sound kind of fabulous. Do you mind telling us about how you? You became involved and and what it's like and how was it this year?
1: Oh, it was great this year. Yeah, it sounded good. Yeah. Uh, So good to be back because doubly so, there wasn't a South By um, for the last three years. And also I moved away from Austin. So coming back to South By was also coming home to me in a way. I've been to every South By since 2008 that was when I was with AMD and that was my exposure to meeting people who are in the social media space. And that's actually why I really latched onto it because I really loved the, the left brain, right brain interaction with people there. And back then it was extremely intimate. You can not only with the person on stage giving a keynote or a talk, but they would come down and talk to us forever. And, and while the other person talked to her, we would go in a hallway and people who were movers and shakers in the space would just walk down the hall and you can just hey, say hi to them and sit down on the corner and just have a really deep conversation. The people I've met there, they, it, it felt like it was a big giant beacon Of the value system almost signaling and the people who are attracted to that were all birds of the same feather and so I felt like I met a lot of people who felt the same way that I did, who saw the world the way that I did, who were making bold changes the way that I thought should happen and we were all just regular people and some Created technologies, some made empires since then. And, and some people have done some colossal failures in terms of their push down on grata. But it was like we're all together and uh, getting the the nuance of we're here for an agenda, which were the sessions, but then there was all this other space that had no agenda at all. And we just kind of like expanded to to really have those deep connections where. We were talking to each other, but skipping a whole bunch of steps, you know, no small talk, no getting to know you. I've seen you online. I kind of know all that stuff. Let's continue from there. And that, and and that. Whew. And that experience where you can do that in a hallway, you can do that at a party, you can do that on the street, you can do that at a restaurant, you can do that everywhere you are while you're at South by it just is so unique because it's so, it's multi day. It's not one day. It's not two days. It's, it's almost a whole week or a week plus, depending on what you're going to do. And so you can have that same experience, even with that same person multiple times throughout that engagement. So South by, I've never been to a place like it. I've never had experiences like it. And it's, it's a lot bigger than where it started. And right when it started getting bigger in 2010, I wrote a blog post about I called it the good, the bad, ugly. Like evaluating South by about how it's changed and what I've gotten from it, and how they could do better, and how they could really like accommodate more people and stuff like that. And at that time, once again, the people at the festival, you can run into them, talk to them, chit chat. And they read this article, sent it to Hugh Forrest, who was the head of interaction Active at the time. And he's like, "Hey." If you have so much to say, how about you do it from the inside and you ask me to be part <laughs> of the so advisory awesome.
0: board?
1: Yeah. And so I've been helping to shape panels and part of the conference since then. This year I was a judge for the innovation awards. So everyone gets a job to 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 help with determining who gets in and who gets out, who doesn't get in of of, of South by. And so that was my role this year. And so that's how I got involved. And that's why I keep going because. Not only do the people who get accepted are so high quality and so high caliber that it also, it's not the people whose names you necessarily know or the concepts that you're super familiar with and being able to be exposed to those things is so amazing. I went to a a panel about diversity, equity, inclusion without the D and the I. So it's only about equity. And I've never been to a panel just about equity. And so hearing that and just focusing on that narrow target was amazing. I went to one that was about inclusion, but the people who were on the panel were someone who, who was sex trafficked, someone who was a refugee and someone who was previously incarcerated. And like when I hear about inclusion, that's usually not who comes up, uh, uh, those, those people, people on stage. And so like, that is the kind of thing where it's like, oh my gosh, I am really glad that I came here. And at the same time, I saw Lizzo on stage, which is awesome. But like big, big names in a place where like, you know, they're crying, they're getting really personal uh, about their, their journey, their experience. And just people that I think I know, I see aspects that I didn't see and things that I thought I knew I, I see a different dimension or a different side that I didn't even contemplate until I got there. I, I just love South By. This year, it was about the third of the size that it was in 2019 when I went, but it was every bit of South By a South By, as I say, that all of the makings that make it such a great festival is still in the DNA and it's still a joy and a delight.
0: That's awesome. I hope that I'll make it next year. Who knows?
1: <laughs> yes, and you should reach out to me and we'll meet up.
0: Absolutely. That'd be awesome. So before I come to my closing questions, you've come to know that the podcast is like me standing, or let's say rather working at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I would love to know, especially in, well, you have a lot of meta awareness. And so I'm guessing that having heard so much wisdom from you, you must have some interesting tactics or tools to keep balanced or to find yourself more grounded when things are difficult. Anything that you can share with our audience about what helps you in feeling more present?
1: Hmm. Well, uh, I do a lot of reading. You mentioned meta and I do I do study this thing called metacognition. So thinking about how people think and several books have helped me on that journey. One is called You Can Change Other People is a really great book. And part of it is being able to empathize with a quote unquote opposing party or person who's on the other side and I shouldn't say empathize, but just really relate to their position and understand if you can even imagine how their actions came to be, whether it's valid or not, just think of a way that a way to justify what they're doing. That in itself allows for a little of understanding, which makes things able to be released on my end by saying that it's, they're evil or just putting someone who is one dimensional, making them a one dimensional when people have different facets and different reasons and have their own different struggle. That's one thing. I also like to put things in context. Like even when I have a bad day, I think of like, how are things this week? How are things this year? How are things this month? How are things like in my whole life journey when I think about the way things were when I grew up and, and my childhood? Being able to put things in perspective really helps me stay present and grounded and not spiral down into catastrophe. And I I know I said community a lot, but seriously, it's part of it being surrounded with people who will gas me up and lift me up and just tell me how uh, amazing I am, or just to point out the things that I, to me, I take for granted because they are easy to me to think of, or even my journey, people who just be able to see me for, for me and, and in another way that I don't see myself, which is also like, it just really helps me just having that well and being able to dive and deep dip into it when i need to is really good for me. And the the innocence of my kids are is also really great. They they're so creative and they're at the age when, you know, they can actually teach me things that i am not exposed to or say something cuz when they're young i i feel like i'm giving 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 and which is not bad but it's when they're able to give back and just st- say so like, okay, tell me more about this is, is just hearing and seeing the world through their eyes and their perspective also is also something that's really, really good. And of course, um, coming home to my partner, she's an amazing woman and having her in my life, just like back when she gave me the boost of being able to just change careers, she does that all the time was like, she's able to just like give me permission to be me.
0: That's really wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. So before I give you some of my favorite questions, is there anything that we didn't cover or anything that you wanted to say that I didn't bring you to in in the last hour and a half or more that we've been talking already?
1: We've talked about the future. We talked about the metaverse. We've talked about my work and my work journey. I I would love to be able to use this as a forum if I could to talk about A way of being inclusive in the workspace specifically around rigid structures of expectations, both like either in a job description or the way that the process is done. One thing that I feel that a lot of companies could benefit from is to decouple process and outcome and to foster an environment where people can approach a problem in a myriad of different ways, but just measure the outcome. I've seen where companies like, feel like you have to do a a presentation, then you have to do buy-in and then you have to do some pre-research and then you can do the thing, which it makes sense. It does make sense, but also make it so that people can say, well, let's do something, then measure it, then see the impact and then determine whether it was worth doing. So that experimentation attitude. Also measure effort. Not just outcome, like how hard someone works may produce no really measurable impact to the bottom line bottom line. But doing that work in and itself is something that is valuable. And maybe you know now now know like twenty thousand ways not to get to that end result, which kind of can still be fed into the process to limit your your downside by. And, and help increase your upside by doing things that don't necessarily work and make that acceptable. Because I think if you only measure the success and not the effort, you, you make an environment where people try to hide the things that are not successful and bury that experience, that is worth something because learning from mistakes is something that can help improve outcomes as well. And just tweaking numbers or only showing the good side of things really makes it a, a culture of where you're you're hiding all the great learning, even if it is bad. So the basis of that is like psychological safety and just an, ex, an expansion of that, of being be open and having open discussions for for things that, that, that may not be flattering to an individual. Mm.
0: Yeah. Experimentation, I think, is a big keyword here so that we can get to the result in, in our own way. Mm-hmm. Mm. Thank you so much for, for sharing that I find that I am really I'm really inspired. I don't, I, I don't have a company or a team to take this to <laughs> but at least we can put this out in the world and hopefully others will benefit from from listening to to your thoughts on this and I'm hoping we will see change. I think mm-hmm. the more of us talk about it the more likely change is likely to happen. So a few more questions and I liberate you from this uh, interview. <laughs> so tell me, what is a favorite word of yours? One that you would tattoo on yourself, not that I'm telling you, sh- you should tattoo mm-hmm. yourself.
1: Context. I-, I think context is almost everything. Like we talked about community. It could be one person, two people, or the whole world. Success. Success can be cast into getting a results or actually accomplishing a task that you set out to do. But it also could be the journey. Context is king. Words even change with different contexts. Expressions change with different contexts. Right solutions work for one company, but also are failures in others. So when someone says they have a lot of experience, it could be experience based on that context. And so if I think context really helps focus our lens to the one thing, but also darkens the outer edges so that it's not a distraction. So to me, it'd be context.
0: It's a beautiful metaphor. That could make a nice tattoo. Thanks. (laughs) What song best represents you?
1: Mm, Wow. I know it's a tough one. Mm. (laughs) I would say maybe not represents me, But one that drives me is old Bobby McFerrin song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, for two reasons. One, it's like poppy and it's very repetitive, but also an earworm where if it's in your head, you can't get rid of it. And so I think I like to live by that for both like a metaphor of how I want my own soundtrack in my head to go, but also my influence. I would love to be able to influence others to the point where,
0: you <laughs> when they're not thinking
1: about it, it'll just come back in their head.
0: I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> what is a secret superpower that you have?
1: Secret superpower that I have is that I'm able to Make really bad jokes about almost anything. <laughs> um, so, awesome. I, I, it's it's it sucks in some ways, but that's something that a lot of people don't know that I I crack really really bad jokes all the time. That I've been restraining myself through this whole interview to make sure not to do it.
0: Oh my god! I remember because you, didn't you at one point at school think that you could get more friends if you were telling jokes and you learned a lot of them?
1: Yes, yes.
0: So yeah, paid attention.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's one of those times where I was like, oh, people who are popular are funny. I'll just be funny. Let me just read this book of 101 jokes or something like that. Yeah,
0: (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, What is a favorite book that you'd like to share with us?
1: I am going to go with a book that's right next to me. It's called The End of Bias. And I love this book right now because it, it really explains the human condition from both sides, those experiencing bias and those who are affected by it, which is, you know, everybody in different contexts. Context. All right. And not only that, like a lot of these books, when I read them, the, the, it says, and so here's the problem and we all need to do better. But this book actually has really real world examples of people who are able to overcome by bias processes that have been able to overcome bias and like people who are in environments that have eradicated certain types of bias. And so it's not just an aspirational thing that we need to do better, but says, here are ways that people can do better and how people have implemented them. And here are the real successes of those and how, if you're thinking about the world in this way, here's how to interrupt your bias. So I I love this book. It's it's one that's a lot of stories, a lot of personal stories, but also a lot of data. And Mm. it is scientific work That is, the statistics do not lie. And and so it's from the anecdotal and also really hard-hitting numbers that really really reinforce the notion of bias does exist and bias can be interrupted.
0: Wow. I'm definitely buying it. Thank you so much for making the recommendation. Where is somewhere you visited that you felt had a real impact on who you are today?
1: It would be Haiti. And I I need to give a little bit more explanation of that is because my mom's Haitian. And so we we went, we were kids, we didn't go when we were older. And having seeing my mom in that context where in this country she was always one that's fitting in. That, That is her her role. She's the one who has an accent. She's the one who is learning about and asking questions about things. But going to Haiti with her and seeing how she was the navigator. She was telling us where to go, where not to go, who to talk to, who not to talk to, really put her in a different light. And playing with my cousins who when at the time, didn't I didn't speak a lick of French or Creole, and they didn't speak a lick of English. And then being able to cross that barrier and that interaction non-verbally was really, really big for me. And so being in a place where I was fully uncomfortable and where I relied on other people and I didn't feel like I can just use the same rule set to kind of navigate an area, really gave me some, a different type of perspective that I keep with me now. So when I travel, I need to understand that I am the person that is visiting and that I need to take it in and understand that this is an environment that is made for the people. And I need to understand how, to be more welcoming and accepting of others and myself. Sometimes here in America, they're like, why don't you speak better English? Or why don't you use the right hand or fork or whatever? The the cultural constraints, how they're really are very arbitrary and people make their own norms depending on where they are. Like when I was in Ireland and when you're expecting a, a vehicle to come from another direction that you're not used to, it really can wake you up about how, you really need to start paying attention to your environment and not go on autopilot all the time.
0: When you said Ireland, that's not where I thought you were going to go. But yes, I understand. (laughs) (laughs) I completely agree with you. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's really beautiful. So now imagine that you can step into a future version of yourself. What most important advice do you think that future you would give present state you?
1: if they're smart, it would be stop tips and tell me what to invest in, please. (laughs) But most likely it would be, I would hope that they would tell me, going back to the keynote, the version of myself that could be. I'm always changing and always evolving and I'm always trying to be better as a person. And I don't know what my limit is. I don't know if I've, am I 98% of a hundred percent possibility or am I 30% of a hundred percent possibility? How much further can I go and how much further do I need to work to get to this place? I know every day I'm probably the best version of myself, but how great could I be based on my own value system? So. Um, mm. I would love for that uh, my my future version if they could give me some advice that they would give me that perspective of ways that I can open my mind ways that I can open possibilities to, to get to that spot.
0: Mm. It's interesting cuz hearing you say that it's taking me to how you've used the word journey and here you talk about a place so I wonder if if that future you would tell you to focus on the journey.
1: They probably would. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Keep doing and this, what you're doing.
0: Exactly. <laughs> Last question, my favorite question. What brings you happiness?
1: I think happiness is a state that needs to that I flow in and out of. There's so many emotions that are part of the human condition. And happiness is not a place that I stay all the time. But the thing that I I try to do in terms of bringing my own happiness is having a sense of accomplishment and making a change you know, checking off a to-do list, even showing up to a meeting on time, finding the places where I feel that I'm doing the thing that I want to do. And then I did it in a way that I wanted to makes me feel happy. And so I find the little things and then the long things where I'm rolling out a program and it actually is a thing, it brings me happiness, getting in front of my computer on time is happiness waking up and not hitting the snooze is happiness so i just try to find delight in all the things that i'm able to do that is actually the things that i said that i was going to do i've been trying to work out every day and whenever i do it i feel happiness i've been trying to answer emails and really stay on top of my connections and when i do that i feel happiness so it it changes from day to day there's no one thing that i try to do that I can guarantee happiness. And, but I try to make sure that when I'm true to myself and when I look back and, and I actually say like, good on you, I make sure it's to, a, to, to really, really roll around in that happiness when I can.
0: That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Wesley, thank you for the wonderful amount of time and the thoughtful answers, the wisdom. It's been such a great conversation. For anyone who would like to find out more about you, can you please tell them where to find
1: you? Well, you mentioned Polywork, so I'm there. So if you go to polywork.com forward slash Wesley 83, that's W-E-S-L-E-Y 83. You can find all my stuff there and there's a little button where you can contact me just like you did. But I'm also on Twitter a lot. So if you go to twitter.com forward slash Wesley 83, I'm there and my DMs are open. And if you're one of those people who wanted to say hi, and that's all you (laughs) wanted to say, please do so. I mentioned earlier in the podcast about the percentage of people who can lift their own body weight or all these small things. There's a small percentage of people who actually reach out and try to talk to me. And so anyone who's listening to this can be one of those people. And so take a chance if you want. Reach out to me. Say hi.
0: That's awesome. Thank you so much. I will put the links as well in the show notes for the books, the recommendations and and anything else that we talked about that was relevant for um, our listeners. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of the day and hopefully we'll connect again soon, perhaps one day in person.
1: Yes, hopefully at South by even. Thank (laughs) you. Absolutely. That'd be so
0: cool. Thanks so much, Wesley.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks again to Wesley for being my guest on the show today. You can find him on Twitter or on polywork.com at wesley84. And you'll find these and other relevant links in the show notes. So, friends and listeners, thank you again for joining me today. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to the show wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to connect, you can get in touch with me at Anvi on Twitter or on LinkedIn, Anvi Talor, and on Instagram at underscore out of the clouds, where I also share some daily or weekly musings about mindfulness, podcasts. You can find all of my episodes and more at com. If you don't know how to spell it, it's also in the show notes. And you can subscribe if you'd like to receive my monthly newsletter. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Out of the Clouds and I hope that you'll join me again next time. Until then, be well, be safe and take care.